This evening's talk is about the pure and beautiful mind, the benefits of concentration, insight, and metta. And beginning with a, a quote from William Butler Yeats, his poem called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our mind so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. With this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome and beautiful states or factors of mind, cetasikas in Pali, that are associated with the development and fruits of concentration, and also with the development, deepening, and fruits of insight and metta practice all of which include uh, a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness, the chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness, this quality of mind that needs to accompany us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka, Pitaka or Abhidhamma Basket. So we'll do just uh, a brief review of what this Abhidhamma Basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teachings. The first basket, or the first collection, is the Book of Discipline, containing the rules of conduct for monks and nuns, and all of the guidelines regarding <coughs> governing and living in community, At this, meaning a monastic community. Though many of these guidelines uh, can also be applied to living in a lay Buddhist community. The second collection, or basket, brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third uh, collection, or basket, is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has a distinctly different character, a distinctly different quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of discourses or discussions occurring in real-life settings, which both of the other baskets are very much rooted in, but rather the Abhidhamma is a very clear, detailed, and refined discourse of the mind and mental processes that combine psychology, 
ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective and combine it into a unique and really quite remarkable synthesis. synthesis, synthesis, synthesis sorry. <laughs> and it's quite experiential in meaning. It's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be quite helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of practice to actually hear at least some detail uh, about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in practice to understand a bit more about how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my own practice, I've found this information to be quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding can help to counter the fears and counter other aversive reactions along with countering the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analysis that the misperceptions and misunderstandings and attachments and the clingings that can come up in relationship to practice, in relationship to what might be unusual or unfamiliar experiences, or even in relationship to our more familiar experiences some of which one of, one of my Burmese uh, teachers, Sayada Upandita, calls the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 35 wholesome mental factors, 35 wholesome mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful. And they're associated with the development phase of concentration and the manifestation of jhana, with these states also occurring during the development and manifestation of metta, and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and insight continue to unfold and blossom. Twenty-nine of these wholesome and beautiful mental states or mental factors are universally developed. They're universally developed through our practice. Six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome only if they're accompanying wholesome consciousness. And this will actually become clearer as we explore these various mental factors, these various mental states. The first five are active, wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration, both pure concentration and the focus of attention involved with metta practice. With these first two factors also being necessary and active components throughout our practice of insight. The last three of these first five mental factors manifest 
as active, active, wholesome, experiential states during specific stages of the development and manifestation of concentration and jhana, and also in relationship to metta, to varying degrees. They're also active during particular aspects of vipassana practice, insight practice. So these first five wholesome factors of mind, which actually each of you are experiencing to varying degrees at various times here in this retreat in your practice, relationship to to your practice. So I'd like to just list them first and then we'll explore them. The first is uh, vitaka in Pali, and that translates as initial application. The second is vichara in Pali, and that translates as sustained application. And these first two, when they're accompanied, accompanying wholesome mind consciousness, they're wholesome factors of mind. <coughs> but only when they're accompanying wholesome mind consciousness. So they're called occasionals. It's, of course, uh, very possible for the unwholesome application and sustaining application of mind to something unwholesome. We all know that for our own exper- uh, in relationship to our own experience. So the third of these first five is PT in Pali, translate, translating as zest or joy. The fourth is sukha usually translating as a happiness, sweet kind of happiness. And the fifth is ikagata, usually translated as one-pointedness. So we'll explore these uh, a, little bit, a little bit now. This first wholesome factor of mind, vitaka, translated as initial application, meaning it's the, it's the applying of the mind to the object. Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. So in our case here, for example, it might be the sensations of the breath at the anapana spot, or maybe the movement of the breath in the belly, or maybe a particular metaphrase and the internal visual image of the meta meta object, such as a benefactor or a dear friend. The function of vitaka is to strike at the object as it's very graphically described in the Abhidhamma. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. Kind of like training a puppy. Our puppy mind. Vitaka has the special task and fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, inhibiting the hindrance of sleepiness and lethargy. And Vitaka is very uh, closely connected, closely associated with intention, right intention or wholesome intention, uh, as in the Noble Eightfold Path, the intention to connect with the object. 
So the second wholesome factor of mind in Pali Vichara, the sustained application of attention. Vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure or as it's described in the Abhidhamma, stroking the object. Continued pressure on whatever the object is in the sense of staying with it and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the, of the mind on the object. So again, in our case here, for example, the breath, uh, uh, sensation on the anapana spot or the sensations of the in and the out breath elsewhere in the body or the metaphrase particular metaphrase in the image of the metta object vichara temporarily totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt in deep states of concentration in jhana states and It weakens doubt overall throughout one's ongoing concentration, metta, or insight practice. So the doubt is weakened with the um, state of vichara, sustained application. There are a couple of wonderful metaphors or similes in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. Vitaka is like a bird spreading out its wings to fly. So the initial application. And vichara is like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings. So this sustained application. The third factor of mind, piti and pali, zest or joy, Piti is an occasional because only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment is it wholesome. Is it wholesome and beautiful? The mental characteristic of Piti can actually be quite endearing and it can be explained as delight, or a positive or very pleasurable interest in the object. Its function is to refresh the mind and refresh the body. It pervades the mind and it pervades the body in its initial stages with thrills, sometimes described as rapture, Uh, though this word actually doesn't really cover all the nuances of the experiences, of the experience. It often manifests as um, a mind and body quality of elation or gladness, joy, sometimes mirth or a feeling of merriment, exultation, exhilaration, and satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries uh, to the Abhidhamma, there are five grades of piti distinguished that can arise when vitaka and vichara are in place and really perking along in our practice. And as I go over these, I'm sure that uh, 
some of them will be uh, recognized uh, for some of you as experiences that have occurred in your practice to varying degrees. So the first is called minor joy or minor zest. And it's said that it's able to raise the hairs on the body. The second one is momentary joy, momentary zest. And it's often experienced like small flashes of lightning in the mind. The third one is showering joy or showering zest. And this breaks over the whole body again and again like waves on the seashore. The next one is uplifting joy or uplifting zest. And this can cause the body to feel as though it's levitating. Some of you may have had that feeling in your practice, which actually I've heard uh, for some yogis occurs. <laughs> There's a story that my, my friend um, and co-teacher Sayadaw Vivekananda tells about a monk in a particular monastery in Burma um, who would sit and practice in his room on his bed um, and he would rise up and fall over again and again and again. And uh, he told his fellow monks all about it, and they were very interested and curious. So he said, okay, you come to the window of my room at a certain time, you know, and you can watch. <laughs> so it said that, in fact, they did go to the window of his room at a certain time to watch the show. <laughs> The next one is called pervading zest or pervading joy. And this pervades or floods the body, floods the whole mind and body with a refreshing and very bright feeling of elation. And the Abhidhamma describes it uh, as like a flood that fills a cavern. And the last one... um, Well, that's it. That's really the, the, the description of them. Uh, as a factor of mind, this uh, PT, uh, sustained PT, or going PT that goes on, particularly PT that's experienced much more as a mind state than in the body, it has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very fo- focused and absorbed attention on the object, whatever the object is, as happens with the manifestation of jhana, and sometimes also happens in metta practice, PT temporarily completely inhibits ill will. And at this point, actually, PT uh, is a mind state. It's not in the body anymore. It's just in the mind. So the fourth characteristic, or the fourth uh, state, uh, is a sukha in Pali. Happiness is usually translated as happiness. And this uh, particular state of mind is wholesome and beautiful, again, only if there is no identification and no attachment to it when it's occurring. So it, again, is an occasional, it's called an occasional. This mental factor is a very pleasant, happy, mental feeling that's uh, born out of mind contact 
with the object of attention. Again, such as the breath at the anapana spot or possibly the breath sensation in other areas of the body or a metaphrase and the object of metta. Sukha is a very sweet, blissful mental feeling born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. And so it's sometimes described or explained or defined as unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it can be very gratifying, engendering a very deep sense of gratification. Consequently, it's very easy to get attached to. So mindfulness needs to be very clear and strong, needs to remain very strong and clear. Sukha counters the hindrance of restlessness and worry when it's a wholesome factor. Although uh, piti and sukha are closely related, and sometimes people get them mixed up or they just kind of blend them together, but they're they're not the same. So I'd like to read you um, uh, uh, some of the commentary description of piti and sukha from the Abhidhamma. It'll help to differentiate the two. So piti, joy, sometimes described, sometimes called rapture, as I've already mentioned, is like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. He or she sees a man and asks, where's, where's water? And the, the person being asked says, soon there you'll see a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you'll get some water. So upon hearing this, the traveler is very glad, very joyful, and very delighted. And, and then more glad and more delighted when she or he sees the leaves on the ground, and then people with wet clothes and wet hair, and hears the sounds of wildfowl, and then finally sees the dense green forest like a net of jewels growing at the edge of a lake and then sees this clear, transparent water and water lilies growing in the lake. And then there's more and more joyful gladness and delight occurring. So that's piti. Sukha, ease and sweet happiness, is like the traveler entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. water. And the commentary describes it like this. He or she descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns herself or himself with lotus flowers, then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lies down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so gently and says, Oh, bless, oh, bless. (laughs) With the sense of ease and sweet happiness growing stronger and stronger, enjoying the taste of the object, as it says in the commentary. So you see there's a difference. (laughs) 
closely connected but not the same. And actually in the process of the development of the mind, PT gains prominence before sukha occurs. It really provides the causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these five wholesome mental factors is one-pointedness in Pali Ikagata. And it is a universal. It's a universal mental factor. <clears throat> and literally means one a one-pointed state. This mental factor is the primary component. It's really the essence of concentration, the essence of samatha be it a sustained and potentially absorbed concentration or a momentary focus of attention as in vipassana, inside practice. This one-pointed attention, ikagata, in, the, in a deep concentration and in the fourth jhana temporarily, completely inhibits any sensual desire. And ikagata, this one-pointed attention, weakens sensual desire to some degree overall, even with a developing and maturing focus of attention with uh, momentary attention, metta practice. Uh, And it's a very necessary condition for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. So there must be some development of it in order to practice well. The function of ikagata is that one's able to very closely contemplate the object. Though it can't perform uh, this function on its own. It requires the joint or the cooperation, cooperative action of the other four factors that we've just explored, with each one of them uh, performing its own special function, so to say. So, vitaka, applying the attention and all of the associated states on the object. Vichara, sustaining the attention, along with all the other associated mental states. And the piti, bringing delight in the object, and sukha, experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So now I'd like to go on and look at the other beneficial factors of mind somewhat more briefly than uh, we've just looked at these first five that are associated with Uh, concentration, insight, and metta practice. So the next one is decision or resolve. And in Pali the word is adimoka. And this is an occasional. As it's wholesome only if it's associated with a wholesome object of consciousness. Adimoka literally means the releasing of the mind onto the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. 
It has the characteristic of conviction and the function of not kind of groping around for something. It manifests as a decisiveness regarding the object of attention. And its nearest and its most immediate cause is that it needs something to be convinced about. So for example, in our case here, making a resolve to give one's complete attention to the breath at the Anapana spot, or give one's complete attention to a metta phrase and to the particular object of metta. Adimoka has been compared to a stone pillar in the Abhidhamma, owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. So the next wholesome state of mind is energy, or in Pali, virya. And it is an occasional as well. And it's wholesome only when it's associated with wholesome activity in practice. Virya is the state or action of one who's vigorous. Its characteristic is exertion and supporting or mobilizing or marshalling. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. And it manifests, and this is very important, manifests as non-collapsing. The mind does not collapse when the energy is strong and wholesome. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is a state of urgency, spiritual urgency, which we talked about at the very beginning of the retreat. Or engaging in an experience that arouses energy anywhere along the way of your practice, which could be as simple as taking a refreshing and brisk walk, or doing maybe 15 minutes of mindful yoga, or tai chi, or qigong, or some mindful exercise, or any wholesome activity, actually, that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, meaning here, in this case, towards energetic practice. And the next wholesome factor of mind is wholesome desire. Which uh, in Pali is chanda. And it means the desire to act, the desire to perform an action or to achieve a result. And this kind of desire needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire that stems from greed and stems from lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. And it can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal as in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken of metaphorically in the Abhidhamma, in the commentaries of the Abhidhamma, as the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. 
So going on now, (laughs) there's a very long list of 27 universal beautiful factors or universal uh, states of mind, some of which uh, we've already explored in this retreat and others which we will be exploring as the retreat continues. So I'm just going to go over these fairly quickly. Some of them just listing. The next one is faith. Mindfulness, which we've explored fairly extensively. The next is, in Pali, it's called hiri, which means moral shame. And I'll talk a little bit more about these two. And the next is otapa, which is moral translated as moral fe- fear, or fear of wrongdoing. And I'll talk about both of these a little bit more at the end of the, towards the end of the talk. These two beautiful and wholesome mental factors, hiri otapa, are, are actually considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection of the family, the protection of the community, the protection of the world, and in relationship to all relationships. So next is non-greed, non-hatred, neutrality of mind and heart, which is very closely associated with equanimity, tranquility of mind and heart, which is extensive calmness. Tranquility is extensive calmness. Tranquility of consciousness. Next is lightness of mind, lightness of heart, a brightness of mind mind and heart, (coughs) being the opposite of Heaviness or the sinking mind, the sinking heart, sinking consciousness. Malleability of mind, malleability of heart, meaning non-rigidity. The mind is not rigid, the heart's not rigid. Malleability of consciousness. Next is wieldiness of mind and heart, meaning the ability to go where it needs to go for the mind to be able to go where it needs to go, being wieldy, wieldiness of consciousness, proficiency of mind and heart, meaning clarity and quickness of mind, clarity and quickness of heart. Remember, these are all developing as you're practicing, even if you're not really knowing that. They are all developing. Next is proficiency of consciousness. Next, honesty or uprightness of mind, uprightness of heart. Honesty and uprightness of consciousness. And then the next four are the divine abidings or the Brahma-viharas, beautiful and wholesome, all four of them. Metta, unconditional loving-kindness. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. And there are three more uh, beautiful mental factors that are called the abstinences. There are three distinct mental factors that the Buddha often spoke about, that come about through three different types or three different levels of abstinence. And all three of these are really uh, very important for the development of concentration and insight. 
So the first of these is what's called natural abstinence. Meaning the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm. In classically, they're, they're uh, called evil deeds. We don't usually use that term in English, or I don't anyways. <laughs> but uh, deeds that cause harm. And the abstinence of them when the opportunity arises to engage in them due to various conditions. And those opportunities arise a lot for us. So various conditions and various particular circumstances such as one's social position, one's age, one's level of education, etc. And one naturally, very naturally abstains from these mental and physical deeds that cause harm out of one's innate wisdom and compassion. So that's natural abstinence. The next one is abstinence by undertaking the precepts. So this commitment to live one's life observing the precepts, abstaining from killing, from harmful speech, from stealing, from sexual misconduct, from taking intoxicants. The next one is abstinence by eradication. And this comes about through the fruits of engaging in the supramundane path of the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind. The Buddha Dhamma. The Buddha Dhamma path of awakening, of liberation. And what's pretty amazing about abstinence by eradication is what is eradicated is the disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. Completely eradicated the disposition towards that. That's pretty radical, actually. (laughs) The first two abstinences are considered mundane. They're common ordinary in the worldly sense. While this one, this last one, abstinence by eradication, is considered supramundane, meaning not common in the worldly sense, but of a very purified, spiritually purified nature. And the disposition, the eradication of this disposition gets subtler and subtler. It can be very, very subtle as practice goes on. So in relationship to observing the precepts, uh, there are three uh, beautiful and wholesome abstinences that I just wanted to mention briefly. Right speech, which is a deliberate abstinence from wrong speech, meaning abstaining from false speech, from slanderous speech, harsh, harsh speech, and from frivolous talk. And the frivolous talk one's an interesting one to observe in yourself in your daily life. Because we do a lot of it, actually, quite unwittingly, unconsciously. The next one is right action. This 
deliberate abstinence from wrong or harmful bodily actions such as killing or stealing or sexual misconduct. Taking what has not been freely offered. And then again, that can get subtler and subtler as we deepen with our practice and our mindful awareness. And the next one, the last of these three, is right livelihood. Deliberate abstinence from wrong livelihood, such as and classically it's listed as dealing in poisons, dealing in weapons, dealing in intoxicants, dealing in animal slaughter, animals for slaughter, or people to be used in unwholesome and harmful ways. These are the classical listings of what is wrong livelihood. So these three, these three abstinences function as a kind of shrinking back from harmful deeds. And they manifest as the abstinence from such deeds. The closest and most pertinent causes for this are the special and very beautiful qualities of faith and of shame of engaging in harmful deeds, hiri, and of fear of wrongdoing, otapa, and also of having fewer and fewer wants and wishes. Or just say, you could say having few wants and wishes. We could say that all three of these beautiful mental factors can be regarded as the mind, as the heart's wholesome aversion to wrongdoing, to causing harm. And causing harm in relationship to ourself and causing harm in relationship to others. The last of these wholesome and beautiful mental factors, mental states, is that of non-delusion, the wisdom faculty, the wholesome and beautiful factor of understanding, of insight, which is really the essence of our path of practice the path of the heart, the path of the mind. And as Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge chooses a path with a heart and follows it, then looks and rejoices, then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice as concentration and as mindfulness uh, continue to blossom is that with the knowledge of what's occurring and why it's occurring we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, to recognize, and to know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment, without identification, and without fear, or maybe some other aversive reactions or misunderstandings and misperceptions, but rather with what is classically called dispassion, dispassion. 
which is really what allows the continuing development of our practice to just keep unfolding, to just keep blossoming. In their fullest, in their utmost maturity, these wholesome and beautiful qualities, these wholesome and beautiful capacities are the wholesome and beautiful capacities and qualities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. And they're all, as I've already mentioned, definitely developing in this retreat as you keep practicing. As we come towards the end of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer you some advice from Robert Piercig. Some of you may know who that is or may not. He wrote the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which some of you may have read at some point. And this is from that book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So the thing to do when you're working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. That might have been the first Dharma book I ever read many years ago. (laughs) And closing our, our talk this evening from the Tibetan Buddhist master Atisha from the 11th century. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. And let's sit together quietly for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.